did Quinnipiac University get its name? Long before the university was established and long before European settlers colonized the southern Connecticut area, a group of Algonquins known as the Quinnipiac inhabited what is now known as New Haven, Connecticut. The Quinnipiac lived on this land centuries before the first colonists stepped foot in this area. The Quinnipiac are their own unique people with a rich history and culture. In the 1600s, the Quinnipiac first came in contact with European settlers. As the landscape of Connecticut changed with the arrival of the Europeans, the Quinnipiac continued to adapt to their environment despite the struggles and challenges colonialism brought them. By the mid-1800s, most of the Quinnipiac had moved out of the territory, but the Quinnipiac presence can still be felt in Connecticut today. Quinnipiac University sits on the land that belongs to the Quinnipiac people. After we learn about the history and culture of the Quinnipiac, we'll examine and assess Quinnipiac University's successes and failures in honoring and acknowledging the legacy of the Quinnipiac. I'm Sarah. I'm Emily. And I'm Katrina. And this is The Anthrophiles. Hi, everybody. Hello. You ready to learn about the Quinnipiac people? I've been very excited for your episode because although, like, I know that Quinnipiac University is obviously on Quinnipiac land. I feel like I haven't learned a lot about it. So I'm very excited to see the information that you have gathered. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, because I feel like going to the school here, you know that like Quinnipiac's an indigenous name and you have some general awareness of it, but you don't really know anything else about it. And we're going to get into to that and some of the issues and problems with it as well once we learn more about the Quinnipiac people. Awesome. So before I start, I just want to have a little disclaimer. Um, it's important to note that Quinnipiac history has predominantly been told by white people. The book that I used to research this was written mainly by a white historian named John Menta, um, and he relies very heavily on firsthand colonial accounts for information regarding the Quinnipiac. So while Menta does make an effort in the book to acknowledge the bias and xenophobic perspective of the settlers and the colonists, it's still significant that he's using them as his main source of information. So almost all the information that I read about the Quinnipiac and that I'm going to tell you has been told through a lens of white settlers who had their own biases, opinions, and outside view of a world that they were not a part of. Even archaeologists and anthropologists who have done a majority of the digging and research into the Quinnipiac are white. So once again, we're learning about the Quinnipiac through the lens of a white person. And you always need to be skeptical and on alert when you're learning about indigenous cultures if you're learning about them through white sources. Because the identity of the person telling this information is going to influence how they present that information. And that even includes me. I'm a white person um, sitting with two other white people talking about a culture that I'm never going to be able to fully relate to or understand. Who are the Quinnipiac? The Quinnipiac are indigenous Algonquins who lived in the south central Connecticut area. The Quinnipiac lived in the area that is now known as New Haven, and the area of New Haven, um, the colonial area, was established in 1638, but the Quinnipiac lived there for centuries before then. Now, just in general, the relationship between the Quinnipiac and the colonists who ended up settling in the New Haven area, it started out relatively friendly. The Quinnipiac were known to be pretty helpful um, to the settlers, because um, obviously they were in a land that they weren't familiar with, and the Quinnipiac were pretty helpful in getting them acclimated to that. But tensions began to rise between the two of them, mostly between land disputes. 
By the mid-1800s, most of the surviving Quinnipiac had left the territory, and we believe that they went to Wisconsin based on um, trails left with like artifacts and stuff like that, but we're not 100% sure. Um, but before we can really even dig into the, like, the colonial relationships between the Quinnipiac and um, European settlers, we have to learn about the history of the Quinnipiac people like on their own. So first I want to get a little bit into the prehistory of the Quinnipiac. So there's a place known as the Burwell Caraco site in New Haven. It's not there anymore, but it existed before, and it was a big archaeological site that led to a lot of discoveries that represent the Quinnipiac, the Quinnipiac and it represents about 8,000 years of Quinnipiac prehistory. There are things located there such as hammerstones, axes, wampum, and a lot more. But excavations in this area were not professionally done and there were no scientific methods used. So a lot of valuable information regarding the Quinnipiac has been lost because it wasn't excavated properly. And a majority of knowledge begins with the contact period with Europeans. So like I said before, a lot of the information I got is from a white perspective because it's told through the perspective of colonists um, because those are the records that we have. There wasn't really any um, way that the Quinnipiac like kept records that were written that are easy for us to interpret. So that's why most of our information comes when the Quinnipiac came in contact with European settlers for the first time in 1638. Um, it's believed that the development of the Quinnipiac occurred within the last thousand years. So their ancestors consist of other Connecticut Native Americans who came before them but we believe that the Quinnipiac themselves as like a separate group and entity began to develop about a thousand years ago. And they lived in South Central Connecticut centuries before the first colonists set foot on the land. So the average New England Algonquin of the 17th century, we know a little bit about them um, from a man who has been featured on this podcast before that we talked a little bit about named John Smith. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <Throwback>. um, yeah, <laughs> he navigated the New England territory in the early 17th century. And some things that he noted about Algonquins were that they lived in southern New England, um, and they were more populous up north and took part in more agricultural activities rather than hunting and gathering. And we think that they were more populous because they were able to store up food for the winter because they did more like agricultural activities so like they were able to grow bigger communities and there's an estimate from an from a historian named William Cronin which believes there are about 70,000 to 100,000 living in Connecticut with 80% of them in southern New England before epidemic from brought by the colonists from England began to spread so the reason that John Smith thought that the southern New England area would be a good place for colonists to settle is because he saw that the Algonquins farmed in this area. So he thought, well, if they can farm in that area, so can we. So like, it's opportune land for them to, to take. And the Quinnipiac lived along the coast where the New Haven Harbor is today. So that's about 300 square miles of territory that they lived in. We're not exactly sure what the Quinnipiac boundaries were because they used mountain ranges to determine their territory. This is kind of interesting, I've, how like different cultures like are able to map out land and stuff like that. So the Quinnipiac used mountains to determine their territory, but the colonial settlers used river-oriented boundary lines. So we can never be 100% certain like what their territory was, but based on rough estimates, we can believe that it was in that like New Haven Harbor area. The only written document we have that, the, that determines their territory is written to fit the colonial perspective of river boundary lines. 
And when more colonists settled in the area, we can see a change in how Native American groups began to keep track of their territory. So the more colonial influence there was, the more Native Americans began using river-oriented maps to like determine where they were. And throughout the 1600s, there were disputes between the Quinnipiac and the settlers um, and other indigenous groups regarding territory and land ownership. And I have to, I would think that a big part of that was because they determined what land was and how big it was very differently. We can't get a super accurate guess of the Quinnipiac population before the European settlers made contact. Even after settlers made contact with the Quinnipiac in the early 17th century, we can't get a completely accurate number because these numbers were constantly changing due to epidemics and disease spreading throughout New England thanks to the colonists, right? So they, I mean, you guys have heard in like history classes and mm -hmm. stuff like that, um, new diseases were brought and it, it ravaged a lot of those indigenous communities. But by 1638, colonists were ready to settle in Connecticut. So before then, colonists had been coming over, exploring the territory, but by 1638, they wanted to actually set up a colony, a permanent residence in the Quinnipiac area. So the colonists signed a treaty with the Quinnipiac Sachem on November 24th, 1638, where it was estimated that there were only about 150 northern Quinnipiac people at the time. So, you know, earlier we were talking about how there were thousands of not um, just Quinnipiac, but um, Algonquin people in those communities, and then now it's down to about 150. But those numbers aren't exactly accurate because about two weeks later, another colonist recorded that there were only 40 to 50 people within the group. So you see how that the numbers are kind of changing right. a lot. So the east of New Haven were the Menankatuk and Totoket Quinnipiac, and it was recorded that the Menankatuk consisted of only 33 people. Um, and it was believed that the Totoket consisted of 50 men. Um, and many of the people that were there beforehand likely died due to disease, thanks to the settlers. Um, and it's also possible that some of the groups of the Quinnipiac were able to evade colonists because colonists didn't like the inland of Connecticut. They didn't like the forests in those areas. So it's possible that a lot of the indigenous groups were living in that area and were able to not make as much contact with them. So that also influenced what we know as their population size. Um, and then also because colonists tended to try to stay away from them because they viewed Native Americans as dangerous or rogue and they didn't want to be near them. Um, so th generally, there's an overall conservative figure of 460 Quinnipiac in the year of 1638. Either way, there's a drastic decline in population due to the epidemics of 1633 and 1634. And the settlers arrived for permanent stay in 1638, and there were about 500 Quinnipiac people total. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about how I'm sure you guys can see already how when you're reading history through a colonial perspective and a colonial lens, how it's going to be a little bit problematic and how you're not going to get the full story. Um, even something as simple as population estimates are super heavily influenced by European colonialism. Um, and then it's also interesting too, I thought, because the population numbers seem to take on a patriarchal patriarchal view as well because some of the records only kept note of how many men were in the groups so do you guys have any thoughts or questions about that i get so conflicted about that whole thing because on one hand you're so thankful that there's any you know piece pieces of information at all on certain groups um because otherwise they would be completely missing from history 
and then on the other hand they're so biased and sometimes inaccurate that you're like well what's even the point but you know I think just having them you just have to take them with a grain of salt and Mm -hmm. kind of do a little bit more digging and research in it which is um, unfortunate that some of them may be inaccurate but it's good that we have some bits and pieces of information about the Quinnipiac and it's helped us like put this story together and learn a little bit more about them even if it is through um, colonial perspectives. Mm -hmm. I agree like it's good that there's any information at all but and I think we talked about it maybe in an earlier episode um, how you know you have all these like historical documents and things and like at first glance you can say oh there were this many people and this many people Mm -hmm. Um, But you really have to realize that those were also human beings writing those documents Mm -hmm. with their own biases and things like that. So it's like you have to be very skeptical when looking at these documents and things and be very aware, like you said, of where they come from. Totally. So so now we have a general estimation of what the population of the Quinnipiac was during that time. And I just thought that was really interesting, again, because of like, the European colonial lens that was on all of that research that I read and just wanted to touch upon that. But I also wanted to talk about like the culture and the politics and the lifestyle of the Quinnipiac people. So um, the first section I have is the clothing and politics of the Quinnipiac. So the clothing, um, we're not exactly sure how they dressed, but there were no colonial records, sketches, paintings, descriptions, stuff like that are not very common throughout colonial records because colonists believe that indigenous people were, and this is a quote from the book that I read um, by John Menta, at best ignorant heathens or at the worst evil children of Satan. Um, It's likely that their wardrobe consisted of skins and furs of the animals of the region such as deer, bears, wolves, foxes, squirrels, and more. Um, Men and women wore leggings during the winter months and they also would have worn long robes, cloaks, and aprons for warmth. And according to the book, over time, Quinnipiac became the Quinnipiac became dependent on European trucking, which was a type of cloth that the Europeans traded a lot with indigenous people to make clothing. And that trucking cloth was a very valued trade item of the Quinnipiac. Um, also, the dwellings of the Quinnipiac. So, the preferred dwellings of New England indigenous people in general was either a wigwam or a roundhouse. So those were just dome structures built by women using many different materials such as wood, sod, bark, and woven grass. They were about 10 to 16 feet in diameter and there was a bark covering of the wigwam which was shingled that was actually made it waterproof. And there was a smoke hole at the top for campfire fumes but the wigwam usually still be pretty smoky inside anyway and New Haven town hall records from 1640 show that the Quinnipiac used wigwams as well. Uh, Transportation of the Quinnipiac. They relied heavily on water travel, usually a dugout canoe from like a tree um, trunk or something like that. And they also had intricate footpaths to remain in contact with their neighbors. Again, their main travel route was through water and they used the Quinnipiac River, which I'm sure you guys have seen like signs for it and stuff like that throughout Connecticut. And they, it's believed that they would ride the Quinnipiac River all the way to the Long Island Sound to hunt for shellfish. And clay deposits on the river actually allowed them to make a lot of pottery. And, but their most reliable source of travel was footpaths. Um, the footpaths weren't very wide. They were meant for single file travel. And the routes indi- were indicated by hatchet marks that were left on the tree throughout the wilderness. 
uh, marriage and family of the Quinnipiac. Again, we don't know that much about marriage and family life, but what we do know is based very heavily on Algonquin customs. There are some broad generalizations of Al Algonquin marriage and family life um, that likely pertain to the Quinnipiac. So it's believed that Quinnipiac couples did marry. Sex before marriage was not discouraged, but pregnancy before marriage was frowned upon. I thought that was interesting. Um, it was often preferable to have the permission of parents and the bride's friends before marriage, as well as permission of the Shechem, who was like the leader of the group or the tribe. And the sachem would be the person who performed the marriage as well. So you wanted to make sure you had their blessing before you got married. Many marriages lasted a lifetime and adultery was taken very seriously and punishment for adultery was actually very severe. And it was very common, not very common, but it was not unheard of for women to leave their husbands and take their children away if their husbands were abusive. And if a woman left her husband, she was often welcomed in other like groups or communities. And I just thought that was interesting because if you think of like colonial marriages of the time, it's like totally the other way. Um, especially also too with the whole um, sex before marriage is not discouraged. Do you like any thoughts on that? It's very interesting to see like side by side, mm -hmm. like, you know, what they each thought about like topics like that. Yeah. Because um, I feel like maybe to us, since we've learned so much about, learned so much about like colonial history and yeah. stuff. Like, hearing that, it's almost like, oh, my goodness, like, that's so, like, yeah. odd. But it's not, like, you know, it's mm -hmm. just different. I love the agency of these women. Just mm -hmm. being able to leave their abusive husbands and being welcomed by other groups is so awesome. I yeah. love that. Yeah, it is. It's great. Cool, because also the, um, like, women in indigenous cultures are generally just, like, valued, like, mm -hmm. so much more than in, like, European cultures. And you see that when you compare, like, like the way like home life and domestic life is in like these Algonquin communities versus the colonial communities of the time because if a woman was being abused by her husband in a colonial household like like nothing would happen suck like, it up you yeah. know um and women were actually so valued valued for one reason because they represented material wealth because they were the ones that controlled most of the household supplies um so you, like it makes sense why like you'd want to like treat your wife well and if someone wasn't treating a woman well like they were more than encouraged to leave that situation um, and children were treated pretty well too settlers actually described uh, the Quinnipiac and Algonquins as spoiling their children um, I don't know what that says because they were all Puritans so I don't think <laughs> very <laughs> they, true <laughs> they weren't exactly coddling their kids um, and it was usually about one family per wigwam so like immediate family maybe grandparent maybe aunt something like that pretty small religion of the Quinnipiac. Again, vague record from what I read. There's obviously more sources out there than what I just was able to look through, but this is what we, I have right now. Um, colonial settlers viewed Algonquin religious practices with a very Christian point of view. Um, though there were many gods that the Algonquins worshipped, colonists believed that the Algonquin worshipped a good deity and a bad deity, and that was pretty much it, because like it's similar to Christianity with like God and the mm -hmm. devil. Um, so the good deity, that, that's what the um, colonists labeled it, was named Catan, and he was like the creator, he was kind of like God. And then the bad deity that the, col at least as the colonists saw it, was Habamak, and he was basically like the devil. In reality, 
both of these deities were much more complicated than just good and bad. Both Catan and Habamak could will good and bad things to happen if provoked. And Habamak was actually often called upon by Algonquin groups to help cure and heal them. So more going on than what's actually right. being told to us. And again, I just want to talk about how a lot of the times, even today, I feel like white and European cultures tend to simplify and demonize cultures that are different from their own. And you can see it here, like with Habamak was actually like both a good and bad spirit. He could control things however he wanted to. And they like, they asked him to help like cure them and stuff like that. But if he's just labeled as like a bad person. Right. I think maybe part of it is, you know, with like Christian or like Catholic religions, I'm not religious, so, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, because they believe like there is good and there is evil and nothing in between when looking at another culture like they fit the information they choose to know about that culture into their own narrative Mm -hmm. instead of actually learning about and appreciating the differences in their beliefs i agree i feel like they look through the lens of their own sort of clouded views and don't really or didn't really take in consideration that they may be different and that they may have different intentions um for different things and like you said with their children how they said they colonists said that they spoiled their children how do they really know Mm -hmm. i don't know maybe it's because they didn't treat their children the same way so they equated however they treated indigenous people treated their children as spoiled but you never know that's kind of the mystery of it all yeah definitely So that's just kind of a very brief overview of the Quinnipiac people, what their life was like kind of day to day, their beliefs, their culture. Now I kind of want to talk about um, the Quinnipiac and the colonists and their relationship and how that played out. So as I mentioned before, on April 24th, 1638, 500 settlers arrived from Boston in Connecticut and this was the beginning of the New Haven colony. The Quinnipiac population at the time was very small due to disease, so they couldn't really try to fight back or object to the situation because if they did that, like it would have been very detrimental to them. So these settlers were part of what is known as the Great Migration. Um, these English Puritans escaped from England because of religious persecution by traveling to the New World, which is just uh, Northern America. And they viewed themselves as the chosen people whose mission it was to make a purer, more godly society in the wilderness of North America. Their goal was to build a haven for new religious groups, and they held little to no tolerance for different religions. Um, The colonists began to set up their village at first, and according to the book, the Quinnipiac were fairly welcoming and helpful to the colonists. They taught them how to hunt, fish, and plant, and the colonists were also a great source of trade for the Quinnipiac as well. So relations were a little bit like, you know, like awkward, tense. Obviously the colonists were not as welcome to the Quin- as welcoming to the Quinnipiac people, but the Quinnipiac were open to the idea of trading especially, and they were helping them out. So the colonists were setting up like a haven for their religion? Yes, for themselves. And, but then nobody else? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, they were not tolerant of other religious views which is kind of ironic because they were escaping England because England was intolerant. I was just going to say right. that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, so the Quinnipiac liked to interact frequently with the colonists because of the trade, but colonists viewed contact with the Quinnipiac as undesirable to them because the Quinnipiac were alien and uncivilized in their perspective. 
Um, there were also very, very significant social differences between the Algonquins and the Puritans, and that resulted in a lot of friction and misunderstandings. So the Algonquins, in very general, um, are very sociable and hospitable. <laughs> hospitable people? Hospitable? Mm -hmm. um, and it was very common. Like, they had a very strong community, very relationship-oriented. Everybody kind of got along, and that's how, like, their life was. So for them, it was very common to drop in on family and friends without notice, and they acted that way with the colonists, who it was not common to just, like, walk into somebody's house and be like, hey, how's it going? So the Puritans were much more reserved. So the Quinnipiacs might come to the colony, you know, and knock on, like, open doors without knocking, arrive at houses unannounced, and stay in houses even after the Puritans had asked them to leave. Um, the Quinnipiac would also visit often during the Sabbath, which is the Holy Church Day for the Puritans. So they were all in church, like day of rest, like praying to God kind of thing. And the Quinnipiac would come and walk around the village, enter unoccupied homes, and they would also try to trade during the Sabbath, which for the Puritans was a really big no-no. Like you don't trade, do business or anything like that during the Sabbath. So you can see how like not understanding each other's cultures and religions could result in a lot of tension between the two groups. So there were also big cultural differences as well that led to serious issues. So first would be different views on land use, property systems, and material possessions. Um, their agricultural pursuits were similar. They both planted corn. It was the main crop for both groups, and they followed seasonal planting styles. But that's pretty much where the similarities <laughs> ended. Um, they also had extremely treat, um, different treatment of animals. The Quinnipiac hunted animals and used them for food, clothing, and animals were really essential part of their economy. They didn't domesticate animals except for dogs. That was it. While the English kept livestock with them, so chicken, pigs, cows, sheep, like all of that came over from England with them. And that was really foreign to the Quinnipiac people. Like you don't domesticate a sheep, you don't domesticate a cow. Um, and so the English had to take care of their livestock which meant that their livestock had to graze on land. And a lot of the time, the livestock would end up grazing on land outside of the like New Haven colony territory, and they would encroach on Quinnipiac territory. Well, it's all Quinnipiac territory, but you know, know what I mean. <laughs> um, so then as a result, a lot of those livestock were hurt by traps that the Quinnipiac set for hunting, and that made the colonists angry, but you know, like right. you're invading on their land. Um, and then a lot of the times Quinnipiac would also borrow canoes or boats from the colonists without asking, again, because, like, in their mind, it's, like, a community kind of thing. So that was normal, but then for the Puritans, it wasn't. So I feel like this kind of relates to, we've talked a little bit about on this podcast, um, cultural relativism and how it relates to anthropology and how obviously there's a significant lack of it here in this relationship. Um, so their cultures were so different from each other and that scared and upset them and led to high tensions. So I just wanted to talk about how Native American and colonist relations are often portrayed as either amicable and friendly. It's either that like depiction or the depiction that Native Americans were like savages, quote, mm -hmm. that could not be tamed while the English were pure Christians with good hearts. And obviously both of these representations are harmful. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about why they both are? I mean, yeah, I remember being in, like, elementary school and learning about, like, Thanksgiving. I feel like that's a big one mm -hmm. where it's like, and they all came together and ate a happy meal mm -hmm. together. It's like, well, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's it's really something that happens a lot in history where we overgeneralize the experiences of of people in these stories that we hear and it's either oh they were these people were good these people were bad these people had a good relationship these people had a bad relationship mm-hmm. so like it's it's similar to learning about slavery where there were horrible plantation owners and then there were some obviously that used different tactics you know what i mean like mm-hmm. i wouldn't say that they weren't horrible but they used different sort of tactics or maybe weren't as abusive and it's all kind of individual experiences and you know not all colonists were you know good and and had good intentions and not all of them were bad and had bad intentions it's the same with the Quinnipiac people or indigenous communities so we like overgeneralize this and it's really harmful because um it we're not getting those small stories that really like put it together and give you that like wider perspective whereas like when you're generalizing you think oh like this is how it is but and you get those little things about like well they did trade and they had a good relationship some days and then other times you know the Quinnipiac people would walk into their houses and Mm -hmm. they'd be like what are you doing so you know there's little there's little things that you know really make up the story that get brushed over that are really important yeah I think people also just tend to gloss over in terms of like colonial history and stuff like that um it's like the cultural differences are so significant and I feel like you don't like think about that you're like oh the colonists came to the new world then they were friends with the Native Americans it was like two completely different cultures two like completely different languages like that's hard to to like blend that together yeah, especially that's like a lot of barriers yes, to get by. especially when one community is coming and just taking the land as their own when it it doesn't belong to them right right so by the autumn of 1638 it was clear that tensions were really high between the colonists and the quinnipiac especially regarding land disputes colonial leaders decided that creating a treaty regarding the land with the quinnipiac may alleviate some of the tension puritans recognized that the quinnipiac were the natural occupants of the land before they arrived but that title didn't really hold any meaning for them since the Quinnipiac were not Christian and uncivilized, they were not recognized as legal owners of the land by the colonists. The colonial leaders wanted to obtain a title to the soil by a deed of purchase. So the Mamaguin Treaty was signed on November 24, 1638, where a significant portion of Quinnipiac land was transferred to the English. The Quinnipiac Sachem, Mamaguin, which is what the treaty is named after was accompanied by his counselors to sign the treaty and actually i thought it was interesting one of his counselors was his sister um i'm gonna pronounce her name i looked on google for all pronunciations but this google couldn't seem to find one for this so i'm just gonna do my best it was shampishu um and she was actually a sachem of the mon the Manankatuk, which i thought was interesting so she was a leader and again we were talking about it before like you know, indigenous communities are much less patriarchal than European ones, and then how that has, like, played out in society, even today, I feel like, honestly. I mean, if you look at, like, like roles of, like, government today, still predominantly held by men and stuff like that. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but from here on out, after this treaty was signed, it was very difficult for the Quinnipiac to maintain their normal way of life. 
Um, there were significant environmental changes to the land, so they couldn't plant on it and use it the same way that they had, and there was a lot of disease spreading throughout the land as well. So the treaty stated that the Quinnipiac could not plant outside of their reservation, which really limited their food supply significantly, because remember we said before, um, the Quinnipiac, who were Algonquin, um, relied mainly on agriculture for their food, not as much like the hunting. So by 1657, Mamaguin tried to appeal to the colonists to buy some of the land back, but the colonists rejected the proposal. Over the course of the 1600s and 1700s, there were more land disputes and tensions between the Quinnipiac and the settlers increased. Over time, more colonists arrived and invaded the land that was home to the Quinnipiac. By the mid-1800s, almost all of the Quinnipiac had migrated west. We believe many of them ended up settling in Wisconsin, um, and it's interesting because the book used a term called native refugees, which I thought was a good way to put it, because they were refugees but in their own home, which is sad to think about. Um, and there may still be, there's a good chance there are some Quinnipiac descendants still in Wisconsin today, but the Quinnipiac essentially began to fade away as a direct result of colonists coming to North America, invading their lands, stealing their land, and kicking them off of their land. So although the Quinnipiac is no longer a federally recognized tribe, their legacy does still live on today. And there's a good, there's like a very good chance, even though we don't really know many of them, that people are still from that lineage of Quinnipiac people. Um, so one way that they are actually still being recognized in Connecticut is there is a museum on the Dudley Farm in Guilford, Connecticut, that houses something called the Donland Collection, where you can see tools that the Quinnipiac left behind and learn more about the life of the Quinnipiac. And you can visit there on Saturday mornings, <laughs> if you so choose. Um, and just a little bit about the collection. It was collected by a man named Gordon Runnin', Running Fox Brainerd, who is believed to be a Quinnipiac descendant, and he made it his life's work to gather evidence that his ancestors lived there. Brainerd passed away um, very recently, but he left the collection to the Dudley Farm. Artifacts in the collection are believed to be about 3,000 to 9,000 years old, and the collection includes projectile points of varying sizes, shapes and materials, a small table draped with deer skin, which displays additional tools made of stone, including local quartz. And many of the artifacts were dug up by accident by farmers and others who owned the land. So there's no information associated with the objects that would normally come with a professional archeological dig, such as like depth and location, um, which leaves us with a general lack of information. And there are actually plans to turn this exhibit into a standalone museum that explores the history and the life of the Quinnipiac people. So that's great. Um, also, there are a few other ways that the Quinnipiac legacy is still living on in Connecticut today. Jim Powers, a retired history teacher who helped actually curate the, Dudley ex um, the exhibit at Dudley Farm, wrote a historical fiction book called Shadows Over Donland, which follows the Quinnipiac people during the 17th century and the hardships and changes brought on by colonization. There's also another historical fiction book written by a Quinnipiac professor, an adjunct professor. Um, their name is DJ Howe, and they wrote the book called Where You Can Hear the Sea and See the Sound, which follows a Scots Highlander named McFarland who befriends a Quinnipiac family, and it has a five-star rating on Amazon. So that's exciting. Yeah. Very um, exciting. And you can buy both of those books on Amazon if you're interested in them. And before we end this, so uh, this section of like just facts about the Quinnipiac people, who they were, their relationships, 
is coming to an end but before we do that i just wanted to note and like make sure everyone remembers that while there isn't a big presence of the Quinnipiac in the Connecticut region today, Connecticut does recognize five different tribes and two of those tribes are recognized federally as well. So the three state recognized tribes are the Shawtucook, the Golden Hill Pagusset, and the Pawcatuck Eastern Pequot. There are also other groups in this area that are still working towards state and federal recognition, which is very hard to accomplish. Um, here in Connecticut, New England, and all throughout the U.S., we are living on nav native land. And Europeans traveled here long ago and proclaimed the land as their own, but it isn't. So I was just wondering if you guys wanted to talk about how colonists kind of acted like the land belonged to them and were cruel to the Quinnipiac and how we kind of still see that mindset play out in our society today. Any thoughts on that? I think it's so, I think it's so interesting that somebody could come to a new land and think that it was free for the taking even though they saw other people living mm -hmm. there. I think that's something at least we've gotten that down today that <laughs> most mm -hmm. of the time if you see somebody else that's living in a spot, you know it's taken. Right, you know but it's you can't occupied. live there. <laughs> right. I, and I think they obviously justified that through race and it's extremely sad because you know they they didn't see these people as mattering they didn't see them as real occupants of this land and they said well this is for the taking which is it's crazy i'm, I'm really glad that we're hopefully past that now yeah me too mm. i think we're definitely making big strides to get there i mean like the push for like indigenous people's day instead of columbus day i think is a good step in the right direction just some recognition yeah it's, yeah it's is really increasing which is good mm -hmm. yeah and i think you know we talked about it or we are going to talk about it a little in mm -hmm. my episode the idea of like you know white saviorism um white supremacy um and you know the colonists coming in with their religion and thinking that like their way is the best way you know like ethnocentrism mm -hmm. as we have talked about so it's looking at it from um like our vantage point in history and like being able to see it all kind of laid out in this like timeline and like see both sides and not being in it um it's just it's kind of crazy to see how the colonists were able to justify all of their actions mm -hmm. and then you know non-indigenous communities later on then throwing it back into the face of these indigenous communities and kind of saying well it's your fault mm -hmm. when from the beginning it was white colonists coming in and basically causing problems so. i think the most interesting part for me is how the justification constantly changes mm -hmm. so when things don't go the way that they want them to go, they change little things to make it go their way. So by that, I mean, at first, let's, you know, we're kind of amicable with these people. Let's get what we want from them or we ignore them. And then it's, let's try to get them off this land. This is ours now. How can we eradicate them? And then once they realize they can't completely eradicate them, it's, how do we make them more like us so that they're more tolerable and they're out of our way or they're useful? You know what I mean? How do we make use of this sort of 
nuisance or whatever. So I think it's it's interesting how the justification constantly changes. And we see this a lot with countless other instances in history um, where when things, when circumstances change, the justification for racism and othering changes with that. Mm-hmm. I also think at this point like that we are able to look back on it it's just so clear to see that there were no plans of coexisting in any way yeah right like it was always calculated that like the colonists planned on eventually you know moving these people off of their lands Mm -hmm. um so you know being like being able to look at it like a timeline it's like just so clear to see that like even despite their justifications of everything that they've done like there was a clear path there like a clear mm-hmm. plan yeah definitely and just before we wrap up this section um i want to talk a little bit about how a lot of the times when we think of indigenous people and we think of native americans we think of them and talk about them in a past tense um and we think there aren't many like left of them and this idea has been perpetuated for a really long time, especially when studying um, history. Um, And you even see it in the media with films like The Last of the Mohicans, when in reality, indigenous communities are still very strong today, Um, which is amazing considering how much they've endured. And they've survived almost 400 years of European diseases, genocide, assimilation, land being stolen from them, being kicked off their land, and colonialism, which still has significant ramifications on indigenous communities today. And we're actually going to talk about some of those um, threats that indigenous communities face and have survived later on in both Emily and Katrina's episodes. So now that we know all about the Quinnipiac, um, I wanted to talk about Quinnipiac University and how that relates to the Quinnipiac people. So Quinnipiac University was established in 1929 under the name Connecticut College of Commerce. In 1951, it was renamed In 1951, it was renamed to Quinnipiac College to honor the indigenous group that lived in the Hamden, New Haven area in the 16th and 17th centuries. And honor is the term that I'm using from the article that I was reading. Um, the Quinnipiac mascot during that time used to be called um, the Braves that was then changed in 2001 to the Bobcats. Before we like delve into this, because I got, I got some issues I want to dredge up. <laughs> um, do you guys have any thoughts about, about Quinnipiac University, its treatment of generalizations about like indigenous people and, um, and like the history of it before it changed its name to the Bobcats? I didn't know that it was the Braves originally, mm-hmm. and like even though I didn't know that, I'm not surprised by it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that much about the relationship and like how this happened between the Quinnipiac people and then Quinnipiac University, mm-hmm. but I think that's a point in itself that going to school here for four years and I still don't know because it's not talked about at the university is like a point in itself Mm -hmm. right like I think it's interesting that did you say the 1950s 1951 it was renamed to Quinnipiac College yeah right so it's interesting that in the 50s there was this attempt to sort of like bring in that name and and things like that Mm -hmm. but um 
I don't even think that we've made much progress since then besides the changing of the mascot Mm -hmm. until now I think at least in you know 2020 and 2021 we finally started to bring up these issues and it and I really haven't heard much about other things since 2001 like big milestones that have happened to honor the Quinnipiac to learn Mm -hmm. about them there's hasn't been in my opinion, or to my knowledge, much effort. So I'm really, really glad that we're finally starting to move towards that with the Indigenous Student Union, with Indigenous Peoples Week, and really trying to educate ourselves about the land that we're on. Um, And I'm really glad that we got rid of the Braves mascot. And I'm glad that in general, in in the U.S., there's been Mm -hmm. a push to, to get rid of distasteful, Mm-hmm. team yes. names and mascots yeah this heritage and culture is not a mascot right as we know um i also um isu the indigenous student union president kiara couldn't be here with us today but i know she um helped to found um the indigenous student union and i remember i follow them on instagram and i, I if i remember correctly i saw a post where um she was talking i think a little bit about or maybe it was an article that i read in the chronicle with her or somebody else from the ISU, and they were saying that um, the forming of the Indigenous Student Union was kind of like a student-based project only. Like, there weren't really many administrators that were, like, jumping at the get-go to help get this going, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So a lot of that has been in the hands of um, Indigenous students on campus and then other students on campus who are, like, passionate about doing this. Um, So, but the mascot of Boomer the Bobcat, also in a way if you look at it can have its issues as well actually so um do you guys remember orientation for freshman year i wish i didn't but i do (laughs) yeah like it was yesterday oh yeah so then you will remember learning about the legend of the bobcat begrudgingly yes Yes. i do okay so the legend of the bobcat for quinnipiac university as Quinnipiac University sees it and portrays it, is this. And this is word for word. The Indian spirit Habamak was doomed to eternal sleep when a spell was cast over him, but his ferocious companion, a stealthy giant bobcat with vibrant blue and fiery gold eyes, was spared such a fate. Habamak now sleeps soundly, belly up, forming the peaks of sleeping giant mountain. Today, the confident and devoted bobcat loyally defends its now sleeping giant and all that falls in its shadow. From time to time, the bobcat can be spotted around campus, watching over our school. Legend says the bobcat will allow no harm to come to those swift and brave enough to rub its paw. So that is what, um, that is the story Quinnipiac University uses to help kind of like promote the idea of like, go bobcats like the bobcats are here quinnipiac's here to stay loyal bobcat like protecting all of us um and then you might have recognized in that story the name of habamak which was um the spirit um for algonquin religion that we talked a little bit about who was both Mm -hmm. like good and bad could control and heal and destroy at the same time kind of thing so i was reading that and obviously like the school kind of took that story um and created something that catered to what they wanted to do but I was like but what's the real story of Habamak because the sleeping giant mountain which we can see now from the window um it is called the sleeping giant the area was significant to the Quinnipiac people but I have no idea what the actual story of that is 
So I looked it up and um, I found a, um, a children's book actually that seemed to be pretty thoroughly researched and this is what I was able to get about Habamak and the Sleeping Giant Mountain. Um, so Habamak is actually a good giant who taught people to care for the land and how to interact with nature, but he eventually grew unhappy when people lost the ability to communicate with the animals on the land. So, um, sorry. Habamak taught the people to be kind to the land and take care of it. Habamak left for a while, and when he came back, he was, again, upset to see that people were no longer taking care of the land, connecting with nature, talking to the animals like he wanted them to and intended them to. So Habamak decided to punish the people for doing this. A wise man stopped Habamak from going on a rampage by feeding him sleep-inducing oysters. The giant fell on his back, and he lays there to this day, and he is the sleeping giant. So the, the mountain. Um, one legend has it that Habamak will awake again, and he will be hungry for food once more. So this story, as you can see, is kind of about nature, connecting with it, and then what happens when you lose connection with nature, right? It's kind of, it, it's a significantly important story to Quinnipiac people and Algonquin religion. Um, so based on the research I did, I couldn't find any mention of a bobcat in that story. Um, but you see that Quinnipiac University kind of inserts the bobcat in there to play to the needs that they want. So I just wanted to talk with you guys about, in many anthropology classes at QU and in just general discussions about indigenous culture, there's the debate and discussion regarding cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation. So this legend of Habamak is clearly appropriation. Do you want to talk about why it is? And again, also before we get into the conversation, um, three white people having the conversation right now will never fully be able to relate to the culture of the Quinnipiac of indigenous communities, but we can learn about it, educate ourselves, and try to have like an open discussion to understand why this is wrong. So to my knowledge, the legend of the bobcat was created by student government around the same time as the mascot changed in 2001. Oh, okay. Um, so it was created, I guess, as a project with who was elected at the time, the entire student government body and I think that at the time it must have been it, it must have been with good intentions mm -hmm. and and I, I think that they were trying to go along with this push of of moving away from the Braves mascot and and the distaste of that and move towards this bobcat and and I think they might have been trying to appreciate the culture mm -hmm. but by making up their own their own legend and and using the bobcat and and sort of not doing the research as we've seen comparing the two stories um it's not really appreciation and ends up being appropriation mm -hmm. but i think we also have to take it with a grain of salt and i don't want to defend the legend i don't i don't particularly like it and um, but I, I think we have to take it with a grain of salt that at the time in 2001, you know, again, we've made so much progress since mm -hmm. then. So, you know, that might have been sort of how they thought that they were appreciating mm -hmm. at the time, but it's not something we find a particularly tasteful now. Um, but I think 
my wish for today with that is that we either get rid of the legend completely because I don't really think it serves much school no. spirit at all. I don't know how you guys feel about that aspect of it. I think that's kind of what it was created for was mm-hmm. to create that school spirit. Um, I don't really think it serves its purpose. And I think it, again, like we said, is cultural appropriation. So we either we get rid of it or we change it mm-hmm. um, to be appreciative. Yeah. <laughs> to be mm-hmm. appreciative. Um, but that that's my knowledge of the story and, and my opinions. But what do you think, Emily? I mean, I, I agree. I think you said it earlier where, you know, like you just said, like in 2001, maybe the intentions were with like without malice and like that right. to them was a move towards um, trying to appreciate culture rather than appropriate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think now the test is, like, what has happened between 2001 and now. And we have made a lot of progress. But as far as the university, I think you're right. Like, the the Quinnipiac University legend of the Bobcat, I agree with you, doesn't really serve any school spirit. I think I've heard it all together like that twice. Like, once at orientation mm-hmm. and now that you just read it, Sarah. So to still have it even when it's not serving any sort of purpose Mm -hmm. is kind of like a question like why do we still have this yeah like and I think it's also a bit of a slap in the face to have the legend of the bobcat and everything and Habamak in this um this like story that you're using to like promote um like spirit on campus but then you're not doing anything to recognize the Quinnipiac people who were here before you you're not doing anything to recognize indigenous culture on campus indigenous students like you know what I mean like there's self-serving exactly exactly yeah and then the whole idea of the bobcat mascot is fine on its own but then when you insert it into Mm -hmm. like a culturally significant story for the Quinnipiac and Algonquin people that's when it becomes problematic and you start to cross a line Right. Right. And even you said, or somebody said earlier how um, even the ISU, so like the Indigenous Student Union, like had to create that organization on their own without any help mm-hmm. from kind of like the higher up people at Quinnipiac University. Yeah. So again, like it just like further kind of like accentuates the point that like Quinnipiac has taken this legend, twisted it to their own narrative, but then has put in no effort into actually amplifying like indigenous voices on campus. Mm-hmm. Do you guys think that it's because there aren't many Quinnipiac people and there's kind of like just that scattering of descend possible mm-hmm. descendants in the area, so there's no one to advocate and kind of push the university? besides the students that go here that Mm -hmm. are passionate about the subject what do you guys think about that I think that could definitely be a part of it like maybe if um the Quinnipiac had like a more prevalent like community in the New Haven area it might be a little bit more recognized um but yeah you're right like it's it's students and then a few like choice professors who are doing the work to try and get it recognized because I know in the past year or so Professor Giblin um, the ISU and a couple other anthropology professors and students have been really trying to push for more indigenous and Quinnipiac representation on campus. And um, they're they're doing their best. They're making some he- headway. I think they're mm-hmm. trying to get like an exhibit going mm-hmm. um, in a building on campus showcasing Quinnipiac artifacts and stuff like that. But again, like, but there's not, you don't see much help coming from the school in making that happen. 
Right. right. It seems to be like in this area, um, not only just the school, but in the, in the Connecticut area in general, it's just a name. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that we're talking about them more and learning about their history and trying to get it out there because mm-hmm. it's not just a name. It's not just the name of the river. It's not just the name of this university. It's it's the name of the, the, the people that lived on this land. Mm-hmm. It's important to know. Yeah. And they were here before us. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that kind of concludes our conversation on the Quinnipiac people and Quinnipiac University. Um, a big thank you to uh, Professor Reedy for helping produce, organize, and edit my script for this episode. And thank you to Professor Giblin, um, who's been doing a lot of research on the Quinnipiac people and has been lo- working alongside the ISU for more indigenous representation on campus. Um, she inspired me to write this episode, and she sat down with me for a long time and walked me through a lot of the research she's been doing on the Quinnipiac and uh, guided me throughout the process of research, writing the script, and looking over my drafts. Music is Find Your Way, found by Emily from the YouTube Free Music Library. Cover art was made by Katrina using Canva. Also, special thanks to Rainette Chifu, our producer, Jacqueline Callanan, and me, Katrina, for handling our social media, and David DeRoche and the QU Podcast Studio for producing this podcast and making it possible. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and find us on social media as The Anthrophiles on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us next time. For a full list of sources for this episode, check out the link in our Instagram bio.